Our next speaker is someone who I've had many interactions with, but only telephonically because I interviewed him over a dozen times as a political commentator. And we have Daniel Silk, who will also be giving us a presentation. But before he sets up his presentation here up front, I want to do something I always do with Daniel, which is ask him for his political opinions about what's happening and how it affects our economy. As we know, everything is connected. Whatever happens in this room is going to have an effect on the man on the street. Whatever the man on the street does has an effect on politics, and the cycle just continues. So I'd like a round of applause as we welcome Mr. Daniel Silk. You. Thank you very much. Lovely to see you. Good, good to see Lovely you in person. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel, you know, I mentioned earlier all these things that are happening in our country as well. All the MPs who are resigning, the Public Protector's Office at loggerheads with the Presidency and also with Ministers. What does that mean for us? Well, uh, that's the topic of the presentation. So, <laughs> what I'm going to do for you is a, uh, is a very good question, a very leading question, in fact. Mm. And... Uh, that was, that, I mean, what, what, uh, that's that word you use, seg, segue, segue in, in, in business, where you lead in yeah. uh, with an ideal question into my part of the uh, afternoon. So thank you very much um, for the question, and thank you very much to the Actuarial Society for inviting me to come and present to you. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know whether I'm a, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a disappointment in the afternoon following the um, actuarial kind of guys, or whether I'm a breath of fresh air, I'm not quite sure, actually. Um, I'm the kind of guy that you don't really need because you guys do the stats and you work out the probability and why on earth do you need some sort of social science analyst uh, talking head to give you any uh, insights into where South Africa is at. But uh, I hope you'll bear with me for the next uh, 40, 40, 45 minutes or so. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of uh, any sense of humor with talking about South African politics. As you know, in the journalism field, uh, you need to also just uh, take yourself out of some of these issues for a brief moment here and there and laugh at uh, some of the players and actors that uh, one has to deal with, or at least I have to deal with, I might add. So um, uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm going to, uh, before I talk about South Africa, I really am going to talk a little bit about um, the global context in which we find ourselves. Remember, South Africa is not an island unto herself. We are uh, intricately linked with what happens just about everywhere else and more and more so. And despite uh, the uh, sort of the fashionability of countries retreating into themselves and we're becoming self-obsessed, as many are across the world, we remain very, very linked. And I'll start by talking in this presentation. Uh, and I hope you can all hear me at the back, by the way. Can you all hear me? Is it, is it reasonably loud and clear? Good, 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 because I'm going to ask you questions later on, and I want to know that you've been concentrating. Um, uh, let, let me just start, because sometimes it's more relaxing for me uh, to begin by not talking about South Africa and to talk about, and let's see if the uh, clicker works, because the clicker doesn't seem to work. So the first order of business is a working clicker. Let's see, let's see. There we go. Other people's problems. Um, it's nice to talk about other people's problems just for a brief moment. Um, because uh, it, it takes some of the heat off us uh, in South Africa. Uh, no expense spared. We've flown him in to give facial expressions um, for this part of the presentation. Uh, but the world has changed quite dramatically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You just kind of feel as though he's looking over one's shoulder. It really is quite effective. Um, uh, the world has changed quite dramatically over the course of the last three years or so. It's almost three years that he's been president, by the way. There's another 16 months or so to go until the U.S. elections in November 2020. 
But the level of disruption clearly caused by Donald Trump uh, and the Trump doctrine, whatever that might be, but the level of disruption has literally uh, affected just about everything that we do. And wherever you are in the world, no matter what the presentation is, in some form or other, especially when it comes to finance and politics and economics, uh, Trump's face is going to appear here and there. I must tell you, in this presentation, there are a few images of Donald Trump. Um, there are also a few images of Her Majesty the Queen. So, uh, you know, I do go from one extreme to another, by the way, when it comes to some of the world's global leaders and what they represent. I'll come back to Donald Trump in a moment, but uh, the disruption caused by Trump affects absolutely everything that we do. You've seen it in finance, certainly, uh, and you've seen it on the political stage as well. And you saw it, of course, just how you know, Donald Trump disrupted, in a sense, um, the, uh, uh, the, the sort of fairly peaceful uh, goings-on at Buckingham Palace in the course of the last two weeks or so with his official visit. Um, he did finally leave, I think, as the Queen quite, uh, was quite relieved uh, to see probably him go. Um, but still, it has been a, an interesting time with him as leader of the free world. Um, uh, the issue about, of course, Donald Trump is his economic policies, which are not necessarily Donald Trump's economic policies. They are the economic policies of the Republican Party that effectively is the party in power, or at least the ascendant party in power. Despite the fact that, as you know, American politics is complicated by the fact that the House of Representatives is in the hands of the Democrats and the Senate remains in, in, in Republican hands. The president, of course, obviously a Republican. By and large, the economic performance of the United States over the last few years has indeed been solid. And you can look at all the various measurements and you can look at all of the various figures. I'm just going to use the big picture figures here just by way of introduction. When you look at the amount of uh, months that we have seen economic growth or positive growth in the United States, we are in record territory in terms of a post-Second World War bull market. It's 121 months and counting in terms of the largest or longest U.S. expansion ever. Now, if Donald Trump was here in this room, he would say, Daniel, uh, the reason for that expansion is purely because of me, just because of me. I would certainly argue that that expansion clearly began as the United States recovered from the 07-08 credit crunch and the early, uh, well, the Obama years, in a sense, righted the ship and we st slowly started to see incremental improvements in U.S. GDP. It is sustained improvements in U.S. GDP, relatively low GDP levels, but nevertheless rising GDP levels. And Trump's policies have not, have not hurt that path of growth in the United States. So whatever one might like to say about President Trump, uh, cutting taxes has been relatively positive for the U.S. economy. We've seen wage growth creeping back into the U.S. economic equ equation after some time. Uh, we've seen some attention to infrastructure spend in the U.S., not enough for Trump, of course, he'd like more. And we've seen some regulate deregulation uh, within the U.S. And it's been relatively positive for that U.S. economy going forward. Uh, the issue, I suppose, is you know, how long will this last? And that's your job um, to go through the figures um, and to assess you know, just at what point is, is, is the tipping point? What point is the turning point? Uh, and you know, I'm not going to give you a prediction necessarily on when it's going to end. But uh, when you look at that economic data coming out of the U.S., and we could do a separate presentation on that entirely, 
you could really stack up the positives and the negatives, and they're almost equally balanced, I would argue, at the moment. We continue to see relatively good wage rate increases. We continue to see reasonably good consumer confidence figures coming out of the United States. But uh, housing prices are starting to dip. Uh, the market is looking a little bit testy. And economic sentiment, that uh, nebulous entity that we measure, is just looking a little bit south as well. So I would be uh, you know, a little more cautious on the U.S. economy, but the political factors of keeping that U.S. economy ticking over relatively well to give Trump that uh, boost that he will need in a very tough battle for his re-election is going to be critical. The markets need to remain relatively buoyant and positive. The U.S. GDP needs to remain relatively buoyant. Interest rates in the United States need to remain relatively attractive in order to boost Trump. And Trump's approval ratings are still relatively low at only 40%. So all of those factors together would suggest that we will continue to have relatively favorable economic conditions coming out of the United States, at least into the major part of that U.S. election campaign. And that's what Trump will bank on in order to get himself re-elected. And that's why I don't see a major threat to the U.S. economy, certainly for the next year or 16 months or so, if there is a meltdown in the U.S. If recessionary tendencies creep in, it probably will put pay to Trump's second term. So it's in his interests to attempt, as he has done, to influence the Fed in the United States. All sorts of people seem to want to influence central banks, by the way. It's become very fashionable and, and trendy all over the world. And we in this country like to be amongst some of these global trends. They're doing it already in the United States. I might just add that I've just come back from the United States where I went into a very nice little gift shop in Chicago um, where they were selling these peppermints that are called impeachments. The Americans are very quick to market with products. Quite remarkable how quickly they got this out. Um, and, uh, you know, the negativity surrounding and the polarization surrounding the Trump presidency obviously persists in the United States. It's not plain sailing for him at all in terms of his re-election, but it is the economy, stupid as the old saying goes, that probably will keep him afloat and give him a good chance, not a shoo-in, but a good chance if that economy remains reasonably good. Now, across the pond very briefly um, to our friends in the United Kingdom, and I know with apologies to some of the UK folk who are here in the room, uh, uh, I don't mean to show distressing slides to you, but everybody gets it from me, so I'll play, you know, everybody gets it. Um, across to the UK and across just briefly to Brexit Britain, I don't think for those here from the UK you want to hear any more about Brexit, no doubt exhausted about Brexit going forward. Um, all one can say again is on the general statistics coming out of the UK economy, a major trading partner of South Africa for that matter, and also a major part of Europe, whether aside from Europe or whether in Europe, uh, the destabilization and uncertainty of Brexit has created, of course, uh, uh, a lower than expected GDP ladder or a graph for the UK in the last uh, two years or so. And inward investment into the UK in particular, inward investment, domestic investment, um, has declined as well as a result of uncertainty. We see that level of uncertainty when there's policy uncertainty. Uh, we've seen similar levels in South Africa in terms of both private and state expenditure drop as we've seen in the UK over the course of the last two years or so. 
Theresa May, of course, uh, effectively uh, uh, abandoning her, uh, her, her leadership in, in the UK under great pressure. The question is what comes next. And all of you are well aware of the variety of exciting characters who have put their names forward. If you think there's uncertainty in this country, you need a good trip to the UK just to assess who is the likely contenders for power. But, you know, there really is probably only one major contender at the moment. I have to tell you, it's the person on the right. But you would be forgiven when you look at the pictures of both of these characters. Amazing similarity. There's something that you could predict. You know, physical similarity of political leaders into the future and uh, you might get that right. Mr. Johnson of course came out top today in the latest round of voting for um, the uh, to whittle down those top 10 contenders in the UK. He came out with a huge lead and he really is I would argue the front runner for that position. Now just again briefly across from the United Kingdom which is under some degree of economic stagnation you could call it strain but economic stagnation across quickly to Germany where the smile on Angela Merkel's face, which used to be very broad, what a chatty, lovely woman she seemed to have used to have been three, four years ago, it's just been a little bit soured in the course of the last 18 months. German politics is not what it was. Her grasp on power is not quite as secure. She herself is in the twilight months or years of her own uh, chancellorship. And the German economy also feeling strains going forward. And again, we've just had, over the course of this last week, German industrial output had slumped rather badly. Slumps in South Africa, slumps in Germany. And again, um, part of Germany's clear um, integration into the export industries of the world. And as we move into a tariff war world, German exports will also be affected by that. So, German economy a little bit off the boil, and if we just go across the border quickly into Paris, um, those of you considering weekend visits to Paris, well, you know, bring your ride gear, because uh, for the last um, few months, just about every weekend in Paris, the Yellow Shirt Brigade has been testing the fortitude of the French police. Not that effective sometimes, the French police, I might add, but I mean, it does show you that there is a level of consternation in Europe in particular with leadership, with what leadership represents, and a level of concern regarding creeping inequality. Um, uh, para the French have just announced today that uh, to try and alleviate these protests and the pressures from the Yellow Vest movement, they will be reducing taxes in France, which has been one of the core issues of um, frustration, very high tax rates in the middle class being decimated to a degree by high taxes, direct and indirect taxes. One of the factors that's common across Europe, so for those of you in South Africa who feel a little bit depressed now and again, I'm giving you very good reason um, you know, to avoid getting on a plane to any of these other destinations, at least for the moment. But I might not give, <laughs> I've still got to do the South African part of this presentation, so we're still, we're still coming to it, by the way. Um, uh, and guys, the, the only guy who's really smiling, by the way, the only one is really smiling, is our old friend Vladimir Putin um, in Moscow. Um, nothing like a little bit of distress in the Western world, by the way, to get him smiling. And for those of you who find that picture fairly attractive, um, you can purchase um, this picture as part of the Vladimir Putin 2019 pin-up calendar. Um, and um, you can get him in various poses uh, one month more macho than the next. I mean, you can get him hugging a Siberian bear and fishing out of a Siberian lake and all that kind of marvelous stuff. So, uh, you know, the world is, from the, you know, from the point of view, the world is troublesome from many, many levels. And there's no doubt to me that, you know, fundamentally, and if I have to sort of just put on one sort of big futurist hat, 
going forward. I do think that there's a, an underlying tension that probably we are all going to live with now for some time in the world. We, as social scientists, have been predicting this for some time. We don't always get our predictions right. But the rise of China, or I should say the rebirth of China, because China was the dominant economic power uh, in the 16th, 17th century. It lost ground to the rise of the West in the 18th, 19th century in the Industrial Revolution. But China's rebirth, and that a remarkable rebirth of China in the last 30 years or so, has certainly put the Americans on edge. To me, there's no doubt about it, that now that we've dispensed with the Russia-US Cold War, there is now an emergence of some sort of new quasi kind of Cold War where many Americans see China as the existential threat to them in future on many different levels. Uh, whether it's on trade, as we now see, and it's part of the tariff and trade wars that we are seeing, um, it's not just about trade, it's about the ascent of China. It's about the newfound power, the economic might, the strategic and security might of China. And, of course, we see it overflowing into battles surrounding technology. Uh, I kind of love some of these images. They do pep up, you know, the normal presentation about politics and economics. Um, but, uh, you know, the technology issue is fascinating because it really shows you a battle looming in the world between those who are keen to stymie that 5G expansion of China. Uh, and we know that 5G will be one of the critical factors to really the future of the world in terms of speeds, data access. Uh, you need 5G to run a modern industrial, re uh, fourth, fifth industrial revolution. And China has the head start on 5G. So for the Americans, it is indeed, you know, more than just trade. It's more than just tariffs. It's the John Bolton view of the world that the Chinese really need to be checked in terms of their broad macro advances going forward. The effect of all of this has been, to, has been uh, a reduction in uh, exports, um, imports to and exports from uh, China have declined and declined quite dramatically uh, as a result clearly of the tariff wars that we are seeing. It's affecting the Chinese economy. Um, the Chinese economy expected to dip uh, this year down to about 6.2% growth. As a South African, when I hear, you know, that an economy is dipping down to 6.2% growth, I, I do have a sort of a wry smile on my face because 6.2% GDP growth is fantasy land for us in South Africa. And the Chinese at 1.3 billion people are still able to show, well, they, this, their statistical services show that they will grow at about 6.2%. We should send this whole room off to uh, Beijing to really analyze uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the transparency behind some of the GDP figures coming out of China and many other countries, by the way. But I'm going to use the accepted figures, and China will dip to 6.2% GDP, which will be the slowest growth in the last decade or so. All of us are affected by all of these issues. There's the old African proverb, by the way, when the uh, elephants fight, and you could very well argue that there are two big elephants in the room, it's the grass that suffers, it's all the rest of us that suffers accordingly. And we've seen that. We've seen trade growth across the world take something of a, a, a nosedive. It might not just be as a result of the tariff and trade wars. Countries are trading differently than they did 10, 15 years ago or so. I don't need glasses at the top of my head for this. I can see all of you perfectly clear. My eyesight is great from, 
from afar. It's when I get close, that's the problem. And, uh, but what I can also tell you is that um, this clearly affects global growth. It affects emerging markets as well, who are caught up in this vortex of the big hegemonic, hegemonic powers at loggerheads with one another. And we've seen it over the course of the last few months or so expressed in um, currency uh, depreciation, especially amongst emerging market currencies, some worse than others, by the way, and there are no prizes for guessing which ones are worse than others. I'll come back to that in a moment. But from a global point of view, we have seen emerging market currencies look that a little bit more testy as a result of a return to the US dollar in a world of skittishness about trade on a macro basis, the dollar remains relatively strong and that, do that dollar strength probably likely to remain strong for still a while to come. So, um, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, love that image, by the way. So, you know, the world is in a state of, I would say, some state of transition at the moment with all of these different disruptive factors. Let's come a little bit closer to home and let's just come to our continent here. Uh, that's Theresa May, of course, <laughs> in the good old days when she was traveling across Africa last year. That's taken in Kenya. Uh, sometimes I travel quite a bit myself, I must tell you, and sometimes... Um, in my hotel room, I'll make a confession here, uh, late at night I put this video on in my hotel room. Um, I, I get a real sense of, of pleasure out of this video because, you know, somebody else moves as bad as me. Um, and, uh, you know, when I, it's always remarkable what, what politicians actually have to do um, in front of the camera. Um, she was in Kenya along with everyone else. The Chinese have been here. Everyone else has been here. The Emiratis, the Turks, the Germans, the French. Africa is still very much, I would argue, um, the... The flavor of the era for the moment, simply because there are untapped markets here coming off a very low base with amazing demographic expansion possible across this continent. So everybody wants a piece of this action if they can get it. Uh, the problems of extracting profit out of Africa remains incredibly difficult. The logistics remain incredibly difficult. And we've seen how South African businesses, who you would assume would have a slightly better practical knowledge of African operations, come unstuck in parts of the continent. But nevertheless, from, a, from, a, from an economic point of view, South Africa really has dropped back when compared to some of our African brothers and sisters. Uh, and I just put this chart just to, just to remind you of the guys that are doing well. Expected uh, to grow this year, um, the top growth country, uh, more or less Ethiopia. Ghana, Ghana and Ethiopia are currently vying for the position of the top uh, GDP growth country in Africa, anywhere between 7 and 8% or so. Remarkable growth, by the way. Um, West Africa doing very well as well. Cote d'Ivoire and Senegal, uh, also between 6.5% and 7% GDP growth. Very, very impressive. And of course, East Africa, consistent good growth. And that corridor of Tanzania and Kenya, Rwanda, Rwanda and then up into Ethiopia as well, and, and Uganda, are doing remarkably well, consistently well. Uh, and for those of you that visit those parts of the world, you know, you get that feeling, and I was in Nairobi recently, you know, you get that feeling of a sort of a frontier market with some degree of enthusiasm. Uh, there's construction everywhere. There's, there's, there's a sense of excitement that, to me, sometimes is actually missing from South Africa, except from, po for, from pockets within this country. Um, so the go good guys are the guys on the left who are growing nicely. The guys who are laggards here, including South Africa here for 2019, the projections are less dramatic, as you can see. Uh, both South Africa, which will grow less than 1.4%, by the way, and uh, Nigeria, 
um, are struggling and those two big economies drawing down the overall average of the African continent just because they're so big and so dominant. Nevertheless, the better side of the equation is much stronger on the African continent and that's why I still like Africa going forward as an investment opportunity. But from a South African point of view, we are suddenly seeing ourselves compared with what the other guys are doing and the other guys are largely doing a better job. Uh, and from an, uh, our authorities' point of view and from our government's point of view, they, I think, have now woken up to the fact, and there's nothing wrong with a little bit of competition, that, you know, it can't just be that the Rwandas and the Ugandans and the Kenyans and the Ethiopians keep growing at these high growth rates. We better do something about it ourselves. And we've seen some of these allusions creep into official government documents in the last few months or so. It's interesting that uh, African competition might well be good for us going forward. Across the continent, we are still seeing a consumer class expanding and growing. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to measure what constitutes a middle-class consumer on this continent. The base is so small that even an incremental increase is regarded as great opportunity, especially for, for FMCG companies. Um, but, you know, I, I like the continent. It is, to me, a demographic player. And when you look at most of the countries on the continent who are those big growth countries, they have eased their regulatory regime quite substantially from an ease of doing business point of view. And we have to do the same. And it's a point that was made by President Ramaphosa only a few months ago. Uh, he committed himself to improving our own position in terms of ease of doing business, a position that has deteriorated for South Africa over the course of the last while or so. So the global context is interesting, it's more competitive, I think it's difficult um, and could become difficult for South Africa, especially if there is a slowdown in the Western world and in China. Remember that a slowdown in China will clearly affect China's relations with her major trading partners and we of course have been much more locked into the Chinese economic story in the last decade than ever before. When China's economy starts to slow, it takes fewer exports from the developing world from Africa and I always say this to governments, don't put all your eggs in one basket when you are negotiating your deals with various countries. The Chinese story can wax and wane for all sorts of reasons, but these big geopolitical factors clearly will affect China and can affect China's um, existing relationship with some African countries going forward. Now, let's come to South Africa. Tumultuous times in the last uh, few months or so. There are always tumultuous times in this country. That's the, that's the lot, the burden that we're born with, everybody in this room. It's part of our, part of our DNA. You fasten your seatbelt and you fasten your seatbelt just permanently when it comes to dealing with South Africa. Um, the election that we've had um, was an interesting election. Um, I have to say that uh, some of you in this room who play around with figures could probably have predicted... Um, the exact statistical outcome of this election relatively accurately. And I only say this because I did a prediction a few days before the election, um, and I got my predictions almost 100% almost right. I was out a little bit on the Democratic Alliance by about 1.75%, but I can tell you I was virtually spot on to the decimal point predicting the ANC and the EFF's result. Um, and you could do that. Um, without fancy modeling, without focus groups running for the last three, four months with 3,000 participants here and there, 
You could do it by looking at previous election results and swings that have taken place in by-elections in South Africa over the last six months or so. Uh, it was uh, reasonably, I, I thought, quite easy to predict, even though a lot of people spent a lot of more money on predicting that kind of stuff than me. In the end, we had an election that was relatively predictable. We saw an improvement for the ANC over the uh, 2016 local government elections when Jacob Zuma was probably at his most unpopular, but we saw the ANC still not quite get the same vote that it got back in 2014 before much of the rot of the Zuma era had set in. So it was what I would say, an, uh, it was an ambiguous election result for the ANC. The ANC lost just over 12% of its vote and the DA as the second biggest party lost a very similar amount of voters in percentage terms, 11.5% or so. So uh, for the big parties, and I would still regard the ANC and the DA as the, the centrist parties in South African politics. Um, look, when you compare them to the EFF, these guys are centrist. Um, uh, but the centrist parties in South African politics, but both of the parties frayed at the edges. And we see this trend across the world. We see centrist parties having difficulty in retaining their voters. Uh, there is a polarization of voters everywhere. And to some degree in South Africa, we had a similar outcome in this election. But it was more limited than it has been, let us say, in Europe, where fringe or more radical political parties have gained many, many vo more votes or a much greater percentage of the vote. Um, you've seen the opinion polls in Britain now. Um, for the way the British electorate are thinking, um, Nigel Farage's Brexit party is now uh, the largest party in Britain in terms of voter support on opinion polls. Now, uh, the, the Brexit party is what I would regard as a fringe political party. It's certainly not a centrist political party. Um, we didn't see in South Africa that same degree of swing to the extreme parties. And despite the fact that Perhaps some of you in this room, and I don't want to you know, prejudge the way you think politically, uh, I don't see any of you wearing red, or only one or two of you wearing red in this room. But for some of you in this room, a little concerned about the rise of the EFF as a manifestation of populism, the numbers were not as significant as, they weren't significant enough to make me concerned that there is indeed a dramatic swing to populism within South Africa. Now having said that, the EFF moved from 25 seats in Parliament to 44 seats in Parliament. That is a significant increase in their vote. Um, and any, and you know the EFF, uh, they made a lot of noise with 25 seats in Parliament. You can imagine how much noise, and they've started already in the last day or so. Um, they've, uh, uh, fights in Parliament just yesterday I see. Uh, 44 MPs will give them more clout and more voice. But it's rather interesting to note that that EFF voter is not someone who you can pigeonhole into thinking in a certain way. You might think that they like this, this and this and they hate that, that and that. But the internal pollings of how people think and believe and what issues they believe to be important in South Africa really shows a very mixed bag of issues. There isn't really a consistency amongst the EFF um, uh, uh, supporters on as major an issue as land expropriation. Now you would think that all EFF supporters have land expropriation without compensation as their number one issue that they would say if polled. And in fact it's not their number one issue. The number one issue for the EFF 
and for all the other political parties' supporters in South Africa is jobs, jobs, and jobs. Land expropriation is not even in the top three or four of critical issues that worry the supporters of the EFF. So the EFF public face, the public face of the EFF, which does talk about land expropriation, very different from the rank-and-file EFF member, who I believe is a lot more pragmatic, a lot more concerned about much more real issues that affect their pocket almost immediately. So, you know, I don't think one should just, you know, get too much of a shock when you look at these increases like this. Um, I think what we saw was a manageable shift to more populism or more radical in South Africa. And I'll repeat that. A more manageable shift um, going forward. And um, uh, it does make life more difficult for the ANC, for sure. Um, it also makes life difficult for all the parties as we move towards local government elections, which you will be pleased to know are in about 24 months' time. Won't you be pleased to know that you'll be getting more robo-calls from political party leaders morning, noon and night. Uh, they'll be bugging you in another two years or so, if not sooner. Um, there will be, obviously, pressure on the ANC because these are the guys who did well. The EFF did well. The DA didn't do well. So the momentum in opposition is, I suppose, shifting towards the EFF. But that depends on what the ANC can accomplish over the next year, 18 months or so. And because of that fluidity in the way that your EFF supporter thinks on issues, uh, I'm not convinced that that EFF supporter is locked in to the EFF forever and a day. It does depend on what happens in the broader scheme of South African politics going forward. One of the issues out of the election that bothered me, um, and it probably should bother anybody, was the fact that you know, 9.3 million South African voters who were registered to vote didn't bother to pitch up on election day. It's a huge amount of us who disengaged from the electoral system. I don't like it when people disengage. Uh, it sends the wrong, wrong signals, not only you know, to the process, but to those who disengage. Because when they feel frustrated, uh, their frustration is not directed through formal means, through the ballot paper. It's directed in informal means, perhaps through protest or more violent action. So I have to say, I'll flag this as an issue of concern when it came to this election, a lack of uh, participation from South Africans. We had a low poll this time round. But the election result, which gave uh, President Ramaphosa 57%, uh, was actually uh, quite a meaningful election result because it brought the ANC into what I call the territory of being marginally in power. The party doesn't have the cushion or luxury of an over 60% majority anymore. And when you drop into the 50s, as you've seen, even with an attractive leader like Ramaphosa, then you know the electorate are sending you a signal. You've got another chance, President Ramaphosa, the electorate are saying, but if that chance is squandered, you may well not make the 50% mark in terms of being in power by the next general election in 2024. It was, in a sense, a last chance ticket that was given to by the electorate to the ANC. And that's why I think it was a significant election. Um, it really puts the pressure on the ANC to begin to perform in all its various ways. Uh, there's no sitting back here. The ANC now is in marginal power territory as far as I'm concerned 
And that's good for a political party, especially for a party that's been in power for over 20 years. Uh, when you've been in power a long time, you become rusty, to put it mildly. The rot sets in, to put it mildly. And you need to kick up the proverbial backside uh, by the electorate to wake you up to begin to deliver. That's why, to me, this was not a bad election result. Some said it was predictable. Some said it was giving a blank check to the ANC. It's not such a blank check to the ANC, uh, I must tell you. Um, the initial problems and the immediate problem in South Africa clearly is the economy. Uh, you know, we're really running on empty, I suppose, as the old saying goes, when it comes to the economy. And there's no point in beating around the bush on this issue. Um, and we really shouldn't be surprised that we have an economy in severe distress. We've had uh, 10, uh, I don't know, what a horrible signal I get at the back of the room that I've got no time left. Um, and I'm going to have to do something very dramatic, uh, magically wave away the rest of this presentation. Um, but um, I'll take that as, 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 as 10 minutes left. Um, <laughs> um, uh, the key issue here in South Africa is the economy going forward. Uh, and what we need to do clearly for South Africa is take note of some of these terrible economic statistics that we have. It doesn't matter how, which, way you, uh, which way you massage the economic data and the economic statistics. Uh, even the clicker doesn't want to show you how bad the statistics are. Um, this economy has not grown by more than 2% annually, by more than 2% annually, since 2013. We need a growth rate of 5 or 6% in South Africa to offset our population growth rate and obviously to enable us to create jobs and begin to revive the economy. The big elephant in the room remains ESCOM. You cannot enter a technologically savvy fourth, fifth, sixth industrial revolution with the lights going out. It's simply not possible. But the ESCOM story, of course, has been the key as to why we had such dreadful economic data this last week and why our GDP contracted uh, the most in a decade. Uh, now, look, these are terrible results. Um, and it was as though this is the cumulative effect of poor governance, poor policy formulation, and stage four load shedding as well that kicked all of the negatives with steroids. It kind of, we were on a negative with steroids. And that's how we got to this very, very poor GDP figure at the end of, um, uh, at the end of uh, this first uh, quarter. All of the major sectors in the South African economy are, have been affected, in particular agriculture, mining, manufacturing, transport, trade, construction, the red lines on the graph. That's what's looking particularly ugly going forward. Our unemployment rate remains dramatically high at anywhere between 27% and 38%, which is the expanded definition of unemployment. And we are racking up debt, by the way, at a fairly rapid rate. We borrow in South Africa. We borrow about a billion rand every single weekday. Every single weekday. That's what this country borrows. So the graphs are pretty dramatic. Um, ESCOM takes half of the debt, half of the state debt in South Africa is ESCOM-denominated debt. And the overall weakness in the economy really is evident here. Um, we haven't spent. Government public spending has been down, and uh, even spending from private businesses largely flatlined or down. Government doesn't have the cash to spend, and the private sector is sitting on cash because it requires a degree of policy clarity going forward. So all the indices are pretty negative. Business confidence down, the purchasing managers index down, young gone up for ages, uh, household consumption down as we are all more feeling the effects of taxes and the 
electricity bills that we have to bear in South Africa, um, and our equities as well um, have been down as a result of political negativity, but also exacerbated by these larger trade wars um, and other issues. Now, finally, because I've been given a time limit, let me just mention the key challenge here for, uh, for President uh, Ramaphosa going forward. And I suppose this man does represent the key challenge for the president. The economic stats are indeed red, and they are indeed tough. The key issue for President Ramaphosa, as all of us have been saying, is that you can begin a process of policy shift and policy change, but only once you've taken adequate control over your own political party. You can appoint all the cabinet ministers you like. You can talk glowingly about foreign direct investment and how the Saudis are going to pump millions into South Africa. But if you don't yet take control of your own political party, you will find that that will simply gnaw away at your credibility and your authority going forward. And we saw that precisely happen last week. And it really is a warning. Uh, and and you know, when I dress up um, at Star Trek conventions, because that's me, you know, uh, you know, I would hold my hand with you know, a degree of sort of a headache uh, and stress when I look to see what happened over the course of the last week. And what we do have in the country at the moment, and I'm going to end here because I know time is short, what we do have in the country at the moment is a battle royal. It is a battle royal between two differing views and visions of where South Africa is going to be. It's not so much a battle about who should be in control. It's not so much a battle about personality. It's about the vision. It's about the ideology of different groups and how they see the future. Some, and I would argue President Ramaphosa is amongst what I would call the pragmatic centrists within the ANC, who understand the need to bend ideology in order to take the country forward, a little bit like the Chinese idea uh, of uh, you know, putting to bed some of the more socialist aspects of uh, communism in order to grow the economy, and I think there's that view amongst Ramaphosa. But there's another side. There's a populist view within the ANC, a populist view who just sees the world very, very differently to the way Ramaphosa sees it, or for that matter, to the way I see it as well. And what we saw last week was a battle royal going forward. Now, this battle royal is likely to continue. Uh, and it's likely to continue until Ramaphosa really can take control over his own political party. We are beginning, I'm pleased to say, and I'll end on the more positive note about where I do see the South African political landscape over the course of this next um, year or so. We are beginning to see signs that the Ramaphosa faction is indeed stronger than the Magashuli faction. And that's the critical issue here. Firstly, Ramaphosa is in power. A win is a win. It might have been a narrow win for Ramaphosa, but a win is a win. And when you are a winner, you are able to begin to exert your influence. It's a slow process because just like the economy is a cumulative effect of 10 or more years of non-performance and non-policy, so the ANC also is a cumulative effect of 10 years of the Jacob Zuma era of state capture and of very weak leadership and skill sets that have been developing within the ANC. So, you know, there's no quick fix when it comes to getting the ANC right. But for Ramaphosa, when you're in the power seats and you can begin to exert influence, you can begin to isolate your enemies slowly but surely. 
And I would say that the process has indeed begun, that Mr. Magashuli is finding himself more isolated. When you decide to take economic policy uh, and speak about economic policy as an independent player, as Mr. Magashuli did last week, he effectively, I would argue, put himself into a, a precarious position within the ANC by doing that. He almost overplayed his hand by what happened last week. And as a result, in the great scheming and backroom, backroom deals and scheming of the ANC, we've seen now the appointment of a commission of inquiry internally within the ANC to look into Mr. Magashuli, not because of what he said about the Reserve Bank, but because it is alleged by some that he was possibly instrumental in helping another political party form. And it's certainly, in political terms, quite treasonous to help form another political party when you are a member of another political party. Just not done, I must tell you. So, for Mr. Magashuli, he's in a spot of bother. You're moving close, you're moving close. Just, just, just don't, just, you're going to come and take me off. You're going to come and take me off here. You're going to take me off. So, you know, my message really on South Africa is, here we are in a position of substantial economic difficulty. But the work has just begun. It's just been the first two weeks of the new Ramaphosa administration, the first two weeks of a new cabinet, and the battles that we see in the ANC are being played out quite quickly. And I like the fact, you know, there's that old saying of Keanu Reeves, there's a need for speed. There is a need for speed in South Africa. You play out the battles quite quickly, and with a bit of luck and clever maneuvering, those that have been your biggest obstructionists slowly are put to bed. And I think we're going to move into that position over the course of the next six to nine months or so. Ramaphosa has a number of critical issues to deal with. The state-owned enterprises in particular need rescue. And he needs to forge alliances, not only with the private sector, which is critical, but he needs to forge alliances with his own party and the trade union movement because they will be critical to a new approach as to how we deal with excess staff and the ownership of state-owned enterprises. So the challenges are there, the promise is there, the pressure is there. It's more of the same for South Africa, but the leadership structures within the ANC are shifting and shifting quite dramatically. And that's why I stand here, I'm a little bit more optimistic about what I see, notwithstanding the fun and games of the last week. Maybe I like fun and games because that's what pays my salary when I talk to audiences every single week. But when you look at the intricacies of this, there's a developing, changing, mutating ANC that I think will still hold some promise for South Africa if Ramaphosa can assert his authority over his own party. Fascinating stuff for us here in this country. I hope at least we've... Uh, Engage in some of the issues, and uh, if any of you need any of the charts from my presentation, please link in with me, and I'll be happy to give you any of the charts on South Africa or the global charts as well. Thank you very, very much for listening to me this afternoon.